When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi guys, we are into week two of the Breakfast on the Slow Challenge. Dorset Cereals have challenged me and I'm challenging you to also have breakfast on the slow at least once a week. It gives me the perfect excuse to really make some time for myself, taking the morning at a slower pace and really indulging with a delicious breakfast. I'd love to know how you guys spend your slow mornings. Last week, I managed to incorporate three slow breakfasts into my weekly routine, which felt amazing. At the moment, I am having the luscious berry and cherry muesli for breakfast, which is so tasty and goes really well with some thick Greek yogurt. Next week, I am thinking of trying their gloriously nutty muesli to mix things up a little bit. And like all Dorset cereals muesli, it's vegan, it's high in fiber, and I can't wait to try it. This week, I had my breakfast on the slow on my rest day. I got up at 6.30, I had a coffee, I chilled on the sofa, and then I tucked into my luscious berry and cherry muesli, which was amazing. When life feels overwhelming, I really believe in the power and headspace that can come from giving our bodies and minds a break. So why not enjoy a gentle walk, a bath, and a bowl of something delicious from Dorset Cereals? You can visit dorsetcereals.co.uk to find out more about Breakfast on the Slow, where you can discover delicious recipes and tips on how to start the day at a slower pace. My guest today is Dr. Amal Hassan, also known as the Sport and Exercise Doctor on Instagram. Amal and I's paths crossed when I interviewed her as one of the co-founders of the incredible platform UI Health, and I knew that I had to get her as a guest on this podcast. Today, we are going to explore some of the stuff that I believe all of us should know about our bodies when it comes to exercise, health, and general well-being, and why some of this information isn't more mainstream. So I'm very excited to have you here, Amal. How are you doing? Hi, Alice. I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for that very positive introduction. (laughs) I mean, it's so nice to have you. And I think you're one of those people who I really do love your Instagram and I'm just fascinated by some of the stuff you post and I love your content. So it's always nice when I have someone like that come on. So obviously you are known as the sport and exercise doctor, but how does one get to that place? I'm guessing you started as a medical doctor and did your degree in medicine, but how did you progress to where you are now in your career? And what sort of led you to where you find yourself today? Yeah, so I did indeed do my medical degree and I started out as a medical doctor. In fact, I wanted to continue hospital medicine, but I actually burnt out in the NHS four years into my training. And I think that's quite common in people who are super conscientious, very sort of attached and wrapped up in their jobs. Mm. I really honestly got to a point where although I had it in my mind that I wanted to continue within hospital medicine in the NHS, and genuinely, if I had looked into a crystal ball and seen my future sort of six years ago, I would never have predicted that I would have got to this point. But I was just so tired all the time and stressed and anxious. And I thought, well, I need to take a year out, but I want to do something productive with it. I've loved dance all through my life. I grew up dancing and in the performing arts. And I thought, is there any way I can link my love of dance to my career, my job? And I started 
I basically Googled like crazy and I found out that there were indeed dance doctors, but not necessarily in the UK and that it would sort of team up really well with what I wanted to do at the time, which was rheumatology and bone health in dancers is really topical. So I thought, oh, maybe I can study this in a bit more depth. And I found an MSc at Queen Mary University in London. It was a sport and exercise medicine MSc, which didn't necessarily grab me, but they did a dance medicine module as part of the degree. And I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll learn the musculoskeletal medicine that goes with sports medicine. That won't be irrelevant to perhaps rheumatology, but I'd love to focus in on this dance medicine and see if I can sort of make a subspecialist interest out of it career-wise. And genuinely, it was like one of those massive turning points in my life. I was on this conveyor belt and I just jumped off and took a swerve, as they say, and I haven't looked back since. So that year, I got into my fitness even more than I ever had been. I started spinning regularly and I went on to teach spin. I built up the courage to interview for one of very few sports medicine training posts in the UK. And I was lucky enough to get it. And since then, my career has basically taken swerve after swerve, largely guided by my experience in life, I have to say. Mm. So I've had two kids and being physically active and engaging in the kind of activity that I enjoy became really tricky around pregnancy and after pregnancy. And I just thought, oh my God, this is a huge gap in NHS care and provision of not just women who are really active and into their fitness, but just anybody. Nobody seemed to get the advice. And certainly I didn't get the kind of advice that I think pregnant and postnatal women really need. And so that took me into the women's health space. And it's just been forward since then. So I'm very close to finishing my training now. I'll be a consultant in a couple of months, but this is definitely where I'll be focusing from this point onwards. Amazing. There are so many things that I wanted to pick up on there. I think the first one is definitely the conversation around burnout. And I think that's something that we can definitely look at later in the podcast when we look at under-recovering and overtraining. But the second thing is your love for dance, which I did not know. And that is just amazing because, yeah, that was my background. When I was growing up, I wanted to be a prima ballerina. I trained in ballet and all sorts of dance. And what you said there, which I really resonated with, was it's really interesting that you're saying it's such an underserved area of the arts, basically. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, in the years that have followed my sort of brief relationship with dance medicine research throughout my MSc, it's come on leaps and bounds, but that really is within the elite establishments. And now they, they are essentially trying to take the tried and tested and quite clearly successful model of Olympic sport of team medicine and bring it into dance companies. So you'll see companies like the Royal Ballet, the English National Ballet, with setups that mimic elite rugby clubs, football clubs. They know that injury prevention and timely and appropriate care of injuries in dancers is key, but also that there are quite specific illnesses and injuries that dancers can be affected by. And it's important that we have that data, even just at a basic epidemiological basis Mm. to drive better care. And there are people now with the experience of team sport or elite sport coming into those institutions and driving that research and clinical change. So it is really exciting. Yeah. 
Yeah, that is. And rightly so. I remember watching the Wendy Whelan documentary called Restless Creature. I don't know if you've seen it, but she was, it's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. But she's a 40 year old dancer in the New York City Ballet. And it's kind of a journey of her basically refusing to retire. And you mm-hmm. see the pressures on her body. She has a severe labral tear and she has to go for surgery. And it was the documentary for me that really made me recognize how dancers are athletes and they need to be treated as such rather than it being more of an art more creative industry it, it, they are athletes on the highest level so it's really interesting to hear that you're saying we are coming on leaps and bounds that's really positive to hear yeah you know like I said it's within the elite space so mm. what's dragging behind is the schools and clubs that you and I would have gone to when we were young only recently have I come to learn that I've probably suffered an injury that dates way back to when I was little doing a lot of ballet, possibly using technique over and over again mm-hmm. that didn't serve my body, but was the teaching back then in order to achieve the technique of a ballerina. But it was incompatible with my body, yet I strove really hard to try and make my body do those things. So it's just, it's about getting that data and that research done in the elite environment and then trickling it down lessons learned throughout the wider dance community, notwithstanding the fact that we will need, of course, specific research in those communities. But little by little, it is improving. Yeah. You also mentioned about being a spinning instructor. And I really wanted to get more of an understanding about your relationship to exercise across your lifetime. I know that you've had periods where you have talked about burnout and overtraining. And I'd love to hear about your journey with exercise and where you find yourself now. The answer to this question, I think, will forever change. Even if I were to listen back to this discussion in a few years' time, <laughs> things have evolved because th- that has been the pattern for, for my entire life. So dance, I think, is one of those things when you get into it, you don't necessarily see it as a sport or as a form of exercise. For me, it was extremely social. It was a method through which I could express myself I really, really loved the release to music and the feel good factor that that gave me alongside performance. So it really wasn't necessarily about the endorphins and the sweat and the, and the competition all the time. You know, it was a lot more. My best friends were with me in every class, every day of the week. It was a huge part of my life, but not necessarily for the exercise. So I think my first foray into sport, I would say, would, would have been at sixth form when I, I actually played some rugby sevens because I went to a school where they took in a handful of girls at the sixth form and the boys um, had grown up playing rugby and it was offered as a sport for the girls and we could enter tournaments. Anyway, so I picked it up and I genuinely found it so difficult. I did it for the fun But had my friends not been doing it, I probably wouldn't have chosen to continue. And then when I went on to university, I picked up Latin and ballroom dancing again. That was, again, it was for that love of moving my body to music and not necessarily for the exercise. But I did start going to the gym. And at that point, it became this way to manage the stress, I think, of university life. You know, medical school is intense. You're surrounded by a lot of people your own age. And I was very aware of being slightly different to everybody. You know, I came from a working class background. My parents were really working very hard to help me get through medical school. And I was surrounded by people who had money, who dressed a certain way. And I, yeah, I think I I found it really hard. And I think I used exercise as a way of controlling my life. And I found that 
suddenly I was losing a bit of weight and I liked it initially. And then I think things got a little bit out of hand. I don't think I ever became sort of clinically underweight, but I certainly had disordered eating behaviors and I had an odd relationship with exercise and mm. I, I came to rely on it. And I think that's quite a common age for that to happen, sort of 18, 19. Mm. So that was really the beginning. I was in and out of the gym at university. I took up running through university again to manage anxiety. And when I graduated and I became a junior doctor, genuinely, I had no time to exercise. So my my physical activity was being on my feet 14 hours a day on call. I had no energy whatsoever to do any exercise at all. In fact, I was shattered. And that was my first experience of physical and mental burnout, which I spoke about. But then the year that I took up spinning was really the year that I learned what power my body was capable of. And I couldn't quite believe it. I think spinning is one of those things, or cardio fitness is, is you're reasonably quick to pick it up. And I thought the benefits were incredible. I, I felt more energetic. I could see that I was getting fitter and stronger. And I loved the community at the spin studio I used to go to so much so that I was inspired to train as a trainer. But then at that point, I think when exercise becomes your job, then you run the risk of failing to manage the energy requirements because you you have to teach on the bike and you have to be talking at the same time. You have to be jumping on and off. You have to be available for a certain number of classes. If you're not available for those classes, the job might pass you by or other trainers might get picked. And I was managing this alongside being a doctor. So <laughs> after a few months, lo and behold, surprise, surprise, I absolutely crashed demonstrating all of those signs of overtraining. My performance was trailing. I was tired all the time. I would not recover after a night's sleep. I was irritable. I was essentially putting my work in terms of the, the sort of spin teaching, being available to go to different classes around London before my social life, before my husband before everything. And, and I, again, that was another sign looking back that I was dipping into this unhealthy relationship with activity. Mm. And then I fell pregnant. And it was a bit of a relief, to be honest, because I felt so bad that I couldn't exercise at all. I couldn't teach on the bike. I stepped away. And unfortunately, what did happen was that I so lacked energy and I was so lethargic that a lot of the time I was having to spend time in bed. So I went from one extreme to the other. Mm. And I suspect looking back, that is because I absolutely burnt myself out physically and I had no reserves for that really grueling first trimester, which mm -hmm. really showed itself in my pregnancy. But had I been in a position where I perhaps had conserved some energy. And it's really easy to look back and think this and speculate, but perhaps I, I would have been able to cope and it, it wouldn't have hit me quite so hard. But as it happened, I was bed bound quite a lot of the time. I found being sat up in the tube so challenging to get to work. There'd be times where I would collapse onto the floor and people would be surrounding me <laughs> and asking me if I was all right. And I would just have to hop off the tube. It was so extreme. But that pregnancy was the first opportunity in a long time that I'd had to really question my relationship with exercise mm. and what I was getting out of it and how it was how it was making me feel and impact my my ability to live life on all the other levels that I needed to. Mm. So since then things have been sort of a an opportunity to learn a lesson and, and because 
sport and exercise medicine is my job, I needed to really understand that at a deeper level. And now I'm so attuned to it if I see it happening in patients. I think it's very common in people who are frequent exercisers. And it's very tricky to find a balance that works for you. But also there's a fine line between health and then the consequences of pushing too hard and too much. I mean, I resonate so much with what you just said. And I think there's a couple of things that I wanted to touch on. The first being, as a doctor who specializes in this area, I think a lot of people will put you on a pedestal of having everything right and doing everything perfectly because you have the data and you have the knowledge. And I think that what I really hear is we are all on a journey and we are all fallible as humans. And sometimes we get things wrong. And sometimes even with all of the knowledge in the world, you can still do things that maybe aren't the best thing for you. And I think it's really nice to hear you talk about that so honestly, because I think that will really help a lot of people who find themselves in a similar place. The second thing that I wanted to say was, it's really hard to find that balance. And I am totally with you when I say that I also had a very disordered relationship with exercise, you know, about five or six years ago. And you're absolutely right in that most people enter into it with best intentions and you start exercising. You're like, oh, this feels great. I love this. And then it sort of becomes a crutch because you're like, oh, I'm relying on this to make me feel good. So I need to keep it up. And then you do a little bit more and a bit more. And then it's like, I can't go a day without it because I need it to support my mental health and I feel so good. And it's very easy to go down that slippery slope of then really overdoing it. And then how do you pull back from that? And I think it's really interesting to hear you speak about that in the way that you have, because I think our experiences are ones that I see so many women now go through. And I guess as well, what we really need to start considering is the fact that too much of anything is not good. There's this misconception that more equals better when it comes to exercise, and it's really not the case. And I just think that it would be so interesting to hear you talk about what we notice to be the signs and how you have those difficult conversations about maybe having to pull back a bit. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to to talk about. Unfortunately, it's um, a, a common experience and also a really difficult one. So if we're linking it into having discussions with patients, it's a really, really difficult one to bring up mm. because we classify these decisions we make about training, about being physically active in a sort of moral dimension. Yeah, Physical activity is pushed as the ultimate good, seen to be training and engaging in these what we believe to be healthy behaviors is saying something about your moral compass and your values. So it's really hard not to appear to be directly judging someone and someone's belief system when you're trying to bring up the conversation about training load or activity load. By load, I mean the intensity and type of exercise that's done at what frequency and duration. And I I think essentially what we don't understand very well is the consequences, so the physical, physiological consequences of an exercise training bout, whether that be an acute one-off one or a chronic repeated bout over time, very well in comparison to how we understand the benefits of physical activity, right? And training, like we all understand that getting strong is good. It's good for bone health. It's really great as we age. 
It's good for insulin sensitivity and improving your diabetic risk for your blood pressure profile. We all know the benefits of being aerobically fit or engaging in aerobic activity, cardiovascular activity. But what we don't understand and what no one tells us is what a certain amount of time spent doing a certain activity at a particular intensity will have on our body why we therefore need to respect that recovery window to not just reap the benefits, but remain healthy. So we could say, you know, your performance is going to be reduced or you're not going to get enough gains. And I think a lot of people would take that and just be like, that's fine as long as I can physically continue the next day. I don't mind if my performance is reduced. I don't mind if, you know, we're not talking about elite athletes. I don't mind if my performance is reduced. I don't mind if the gains aren't going to be as much as you say they're going to be or that I think they're going to be. I would rather just be able to continue again. And I think that's the more challenging conversation to have with someone who who is an elite athlete or who occupationally needs to achieve certain performance values then that's maybe an easier conversation to have because for them, the number one outcome is that performance is maintained or improved. And that's an easy conversation to have. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Give Me Strength. And I think it really blurs between exactly what you said there is when they don't really mind about the performance it's like I just have to do this I think there's absolutely an underlying drive of an aesthetic goal that kind of has to keep them going because in their mindset and this is something that I'm speaking from clients that I've worked with from their perspective the exercise is what's keeping them in a small body and dare they pull back from that number of days, they might gain weight. And I think when your sole purpose of exercise is so intrinsically linked with weight loss, and I don't blame people because I think that's the narrative we've been fed from such a young age. (laughs) Unfortunately, that's what tends to happen is you just don't feel as though you can pull back from that. Yeah. I wanted to ask you as well with that, you talked a little bit about the physical and physiological implications of overtraining or under recovering, but I wondered if you could talk about what those really look like. And also what's really important to discuss here as well as the fact that that's going to look different on everyone, the amount of load that your body can tolerate. So for example, Susan from Leeds can probably do X amount <laughs> compared to someone who's an elite athlete who can do Y. And just knowing that there are different thresholds at which people can work to. Absolutely. Recovery ability in itself is trainable. So Mm -hmm. that is that you can absolutely, with time, adequate time, improve. Mm -hmm. But you're you're right. Everybody will have a different starting point. And regardless, you might have similar performance ability to somebody else, but your recovery demands be greater. We're all different. And I have definitely made the error in the past of looking at my peers and thinking, so-and-so can do this much. I know I'm as fit as they are. And that is based on absolutely nothing bar my perception during a particular class, not using any objective data whatsoever. I should be able to recover at similar speed and do a similar thing within the Mm. next week. And that is just not true. We are absolutely all different. So, I mean, as an example, when you've engaged in an acute bout of exercise, because it was a very intense activity and certain physiological processes either occur as a result or as part of recovery need to occur to allow the adaptation process. And I think one that always sticks out in my mind is the change in immunological function, particularly of the blood 
and the availability of white blood cells, for example. And we know that in long distance runners, after a long period of running at a, let's call it a submaximal intensity, so they're still using oxygen throughout and burning glycogen and fat, their ability to combat an infection in that first hour after activity is significantly reduced. And that this process takes around 24 hours to recover after that long distance run. Mm. So that's that's just something that has been tested. It's proven. We know that immunological function is reduced in that initial window after prolonged aerobic activity. So if you were to then retrain and retest that system very soon after, say less than 24 hours or even 12 hours, then you're already working on a lowered immunological reserve. Yet we know that after that stimulus of aerobic activity, immunological function will reduce even further. So this pattern that we see with overtraining includes symptoms of frequent infections, particularly viral infections, and just not being able to shift these quite low-grade viral sniffles, coughs, mm. etc. So that that's a good sign that somebody is is overtraining. And there are papers published about how how you can improve through nutrition your immunological function directly after an exercise bout like that. But genuinely, I think rest and just allowing the function to return back to normal, it is the best thing in that situation. Yeah. What would be good to hear from you is what you really classify as rest and what's valuable rest for people and how they can really try and incorporate that into their training. Also, the readiness to train that you talk about, which I think is something that all of us can start to apply to ourselves and something that I definitely do when I'm training now, like really checking in with those questions with myself and, and asking myself that before I start a session has been so helpful. So explaining a little bit about what, what you mean with that. Rest occurs on a spectrum, as does activity, and fundamental to all recovery processes will be sleep. So if you have had a particularly intense session, then getting a decent amount of sleep, and that will be different for everybody, but for me, that looks like something like eight to nine hours. For other people, it might be seven. For others, it might be 10. Getting that period of sleep where all the rebuilding occurs via hormonal processes within our bodily systems, particularly muscle, is vital. So that's number one. I mean, generally, your body will tell you what you feel like doing at any given time. And, mm. and that's why the readiness to to train is, is so key. But we tend to do those measurements of a morning and to do it at a time that is consistent and meaningful in your training week, I think is useful. And, and not everybody has to do this, but it's certainly something that elite sporting institutions will do because they want to ensure that any load they put on their athletes is appropriate to how they're feeling to avoid injury and illness in the days that follow. So I really love using it, but the way I have done it for myself has changed so much. Even in the last year, I did it a lot sort of this time last year because I was feeling particularly unwell and we haven't spoken about it, but I had a diagnosis of early menopause last year. So 
I was really trying to work out why I was so tired and I was using it on a daily basis. But if you're not someone who can sit down in your day, then I think it's about working out what is the appropriate activity intensity to do on a day like that. And I think you have to just look at your week and say, what am I realistically going to be able to do if I can't get to sleep early, if I can't get enough sleep overnight, Mm -hmm. if I'm not going to be able to spend 20 minutes just not engaging in not just physical activities, so like walking or being just being on your feet in general, but even cognitive, sometimes even cognitive stress on top of your physical exertion can cause your body to go into overdrive and you, you get that sense of being wired. So I think it's just relative to the intensity of the activity you've been doing. And if it's been intense and long and arduous, don't feel bad about having a lie down. Absolutely fine. But just have a look through your week if you're somebody who does plan what you do and try and map how much sleep you're going to need roughly, what percentage of the time you're going to be on your feet or sat down and therefore tailor your training around that unless you are somebody who has very specific goals. Often people don't, but they don't tend to factor in their days and the existing demand of their daily life on top of the exercise that they want to do. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, really, really good points. I think for me, definitely one of the things that I've learned is I prioritize sleep like it were gold dust, literally. (laughs) That for me, if my sleep is good, everything else in my life is a million times better. And as soon as I started to respect the fact that for my body, I need to be in bed by half nine. That's just the way I am. I wake up early naturally because I'm a morning person. And so I have to be in bed early to get that sleep quality and that deep REM sleep. And if I do that, great. I feel amazing. If I don't, I'm a little bit all over the place. That's when I have to pull it back and not train maybe as hard. So it is always in flux. And again, like you said, it's always on spectrum as well in terms of learning to push and pull and I and I tell a lot of my clients that there are times when we can really push ourselves and we feel great we've got loads of energy we're probably less stressed maybe we haven't got a lot going on and there are also times when you need to respect the fact that things might take priority over exercise and it's okay to pull back and knowing when to do that is actually it's hard but it's a really really good thing to learn how to do. Absolutely. And and just to know that it's okay, because it, just going back to that point about being active as being this number one value in life, mm-hmm. you know, just as you've said there, in busy or stressful times, there will be other things that keep you more healthy than just being as active as you can on top of all of that stress. And I think that's something that life has taught me the hard way. And I'm still trying to get my head around. I think we just need to send realistic and balanced messages. People's lives are absolutely, as you say, always in a state of flux. And and as a result, you have to adapt the stress that you put on your body as best as you can. And exercise is one of those. Yes, there are a million benefits and there are a million benefits in the short term to an exercise bout. But does that need to be as intense as you want it to be? Not always. It could Mm. be low intensity and you still get some of those great benefits. I want to quote that and I I want to have it on my wall or something that sometimes exercise isn't the healthiest thing for you. Yeah, I love that. Now you spoke earlier, I'm going to change and pivot the subject now to training during pregnancy. Obviously you are a co-founder of the amazing platform Umi Health. Can you talk about what Umi Health is, what you guys do and really why you felt that there was a kind of gap in the market that needed filling? 
Yeah. So I'm going to talk as one of the original founders, but I'm no longer one of the core team. So I need to hand over the credit to Helen and Elizabeth here. Mm. But but together in 2019, we co-founded Umi Health as this pelvic health online platform to fill a huge gap in women's health knowledge about pelvic health, but how that relates to being active throughout your lifetime. And from, from a personal point of view, part of the shock that I had with respect to the setup of the NHS to address these issues when I was initially postnatal, very much related to how I got involved with it. And essentially, without going into too much detail, I had an emergency forceps delivery with my first child. And that left me with some pelvic floor dysfunction that I needed to navigate, but I didn't know what it was. So I didn't know how to tell my doctor. And bear in mind, I am a musculoskeletal medicine doctor, and Mm -hmm. I did not the symptoms that I was having. So I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how to articulate it to my doctor. My doctor didn't bring it up at my six week check. And I kind of was just left to manage this awful pain that I was having on my own and via Dr. Google. And eventually I I found out what it was, but I just thought, God, this had a massive impact on me Mm. for the number of women who suffer, not just during pregnancy and postnatal, but even prenatally with pelvic floor dysfunction. So that things like incontinence and prolapse was astonishing to me. And I met some really engaged, enthusiastic women with similar experiences. And it sort of drove a period of, I guess you'd call it activism. And we went to the House of Lords and spoke to Baroness Cumberledge, who had put out one of her reports on women's health and obstetric care in the NHS. And we got to have all these wonderful meetings and it just fueled our ideas. And in the end, we just thought, well, we ought to fill this gap ourselves because it's not going to be happening quickly enough in the NHS. And I should say that pelvic health physiotherapists do exist in the NHS, but it wasn't as well funded as it currently is in terms of addressing postnatal issues back then. So we wanted to make the information as accessible as possible to as many women as possible and created these online courses. So one free, which is essentials, which covers all the basics of pelvic health that you would need to know. And then going into a bit more detail, some other courses specifically directed at the pregnancy and postnatal periods for as low a fee as we could manage, that we were effectively a startup. It's still a very young business and they're doing some wonderful stuff, bringing out eBooks and other courses in the near future. So it's really been amazing and we've had fantastic feedback from people, but it's definitely a topic that has snowballed on social media in the last few years, but it just needs, it just needs to become normal for girls and women to know this stuff. Mm. Yeah, I shadowed Helen, who's another of your co-founders in her clinic. And it was one of those eye-opening experiences where I had such little knowledge of that area. I knew nothing, basically. I couldn't even tell you where the pelvic floor was before I went to go and see (laughs) Helen. So as a personal trainer, I felt so just baffled by the fact that this wasn't more mainstream in personal training qualifications or CPD for trainers, because 
50% of, of our clients are female, you know, if not more than that a lot of the time. Yeah. And if you're having someone who's coming back to training post-pregnancy, which a lot of people do, you know, that's a, one of the crucial times when people get a personal trainer. How are we not knowing how to cater to basic pelvic health criteria and knowing what to say if your client says they leak during training or, you know, all of these really basic levels of care that I think we should have. And I was just so shocked that there was such a lack of knowledge on my part, but also that Helen was seeing women in clinic who were saying, you know, the same thing that, that, that unfortunately they had to go privately to get the care that they needed. I think it'd be really interesting to hear from you also about kind of just how that transitions throughout a woman's life. So pelvic health is something that we, we should all be mindful of throughout our lives. And I guess if you exercise to a high level, it's probably something you're more aware of. But I guess it's something that not only changes through pregnancy, but also menopause too. And you you mentioned earlier that you were diagnosed last year with having early menopause. I wondered if you could share a little bit about that if you feel comfortable and just talking about your experiences with that. Yeah, I mean, luckily for me, I'm at a stage where I haven't quite got to the point where pelvic floor has become a massive issue. But but typically women would, I guess you call it represent, but in my head, it was the first time a woman would normally present with symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction, mm. like continence, prolapse, even hemorrhoids is a, is a sign of pelvic floor dysfunction. But the lack of estrogen will affect connective tissues as a whole, and it will contribute to the lack of tonicity in the pelvic floor and a decrease in function and strength as a result. And so that's typically why at that stage in a woman's life, she might experience or visit her doctor with symptoms of worsening or symptomatic prolapse or incontinence or, or bladder, bladder dysfunction or, or on a spectrum. It can have other symptoms way beyond the, those that are typically told or explained to us. So in my head, a menopausal woman was sort of sweating all the time, anxious, and maybe a bit a bit forgetful and somebody with prolapse. So that was some that was in my head. And in the last year I have come to learn that it is incredibly complex, as is anything with women's health, isn't it? Things super complicated and it's not the same for everybody. But for me, fatigue has been a big issue and an inability to consistently train. And as we know, being strong, training in strength and having a bit of impact exposure to the pelvic floor. So even through things like running, skipping, etc., jumping is good for pelvic floor function. And in the time that I haven't been able to do those things because of symptoms of the perimenopause, yeah, I think I have experienced some worsening pelvic floor dysfunction, but it's hard to tell whether it's because of that, you know, lack of exposure to exercise or directly because of the change in hormonal function. I think it's early doors for me, mm. further down the line, when you are lacking that um, level of estrogen to maintain connective tissue strength and structure, then yeah, absolutely, it will have an effect. And when it comes to exercise selection, obviously, you've talked about feeling incredible amounts of fatigue, which I, which I appreciate must be so challenging as someone who likes exercise that you aren't able to have to do that must just be so hard but for women that do have enough energy and do want to do some form of exercise obviously we know that strength training is hugely beneficial as women go through that stage of their lives can you talk about what we know in terms of the research supporting some form of resistance training particularly as women enter you know perimenopause and menopause yeah, I think there isn't very much, unfortunately. What we do know is that you do have a propensity to fatty deposition than you do to building muscle. So hypertrophy becomes quite a challenge. 
And the results that you expected to see pre-menopausally with an exposure to a certain stimulus with respect to strength training, whatever stage you are at, so whether you're sort of in that hypertrophy training zone, it's unlikely to be the same, again, when you lack that exposure to estrogen, but also testosterone, which can and does dwindle throughout the perimenopause and postmenopausally. So it's that difficulty in building muscle, but also that need to as I mentioned before, reduce insulin insensitivity, which increases your diabetic risk. We know strength training is great for that. Improve bone health. So the traction of of contracting muscle on tendon onto bone is a great stimulus for bone turnover, as is impact, but it needs to be weighed up again with that energy availability. And that's why it's really important that you're not suddenly increasing your training load postmenopausally. You need to build Build it up slowly and ensure that your energy availability, so your nutrition is as good as it needs to be to prevent any issues or consequences associated with low bone mineral density. So there's a bit of a, a balance to get right. Mm. But yeah, strength training is great for the cardiovascular profile, the metabolic profile, for bone health, but it, it just might be harder than it was before. Yeah, yeah. And I think like, what I love is when I see they've never really done much exercise, and they start training with me, you know, age 50 to 60. And Mm. the benefit to them having done nothing to then strength training at that later age is is amazing. And I think this podcast centers around strength. And we've discussed all sorts of strength in today's podcast. But I think strength through life is one of those things that I am really trying to get people to understand that it's not just about engaging with exercise, whatever that may be, whether that's resistance training or whatever it is in the short term. It is about this idea of training for life that exercise supports us structurally, physically, emotionally. But again, going back to what you said about it being this moral thing, at the same time, not having this kind of halo effect of more being better and the more exercise you do, the better you are as a human being. It's trying to find that really sweet spot place that, that that's kind of between those two things, basically. Yeah, and it is, it's hard and we're not gonna, we're not gonna be able to find an answer for everyone. And that's why it's so great to have these discussions in clinic with someone. And what's something you, you just got me thinking about is I have recently been not panicking, but thinking, Oh God, you know, I've really got to do something about my strength now that I've come upon this time of my life at an unexpectedly early point. Mm. And I sit in clinic constantly seeing musculoskeletal injuries, not just acute ones, but ones that come on over a period of time that might be associated with some biomechanical issues relating to strength deficits. Mm. So I am reminded on a daily basis that strength is not always the most important feature of preventing an injury, but it's a really common feature. And you run the risk of spending more time away from the activities and the things you love if you do develop sort of these issues with ill health and injury. And we just want people to be able to stay as active as they can for as long as they can. You know, and that's the same, whether it's avoiding overtraining, burnout, or not having the strength to meet the demands of life as you get older, where suddenly maintaining muscle mass, maintaining bone strength, and maintaining good cardiovascular and metabolic health become a challenge by nature of our physiology. Yeah, completely. 
Now, I want to pivot to a slightly more fun question, but it's really around just sort of how you feel about the fitness industry and just some fun questions to end on because we've been very serious today and I love it. I love talking about this sort of stuff. But my first one is, what is your biggest pet peeve when it comes to a myth in the fitness industry or with exercise? What's your most hated myth? Unfortunately, it's about going hard and giving it all you've got. I just think you don't have to. You shouldn't feel bad for not giving it all you've got because mm-hmm. you will get a lot out of something even if you don't give it all you've got. The fact that you even try or that you're showing up is absolutely brilliant. And if you even maintain consistency, then that is absolutely fantastic. And so many people can't and don't in this country. And the fact that you do, even if you're not giving it all you've got, is absolutely fine. I love that. My second one is, if you could wave a magic wand and ban one thing from the fitness industry, what would it be? Oh, that's really hard. Weirdly, I want to say Theraguns. I just think sometimes we can be sold something without really realizing what it's good for when we should use it. And I just feel like the Theragun might be might be one of those things. I hope I haven't opened myself up to that. No, I know what you mean, though. If something claims it's too good to be true, it often is. And I would say with that, it's absolutely about the application of it rather than the, the thing itself. And I, yeah, I'm with you. Final question. What is one thing we can all do today for free to better support our health and well-being? Okay, let's go on message. Take a rest. <laughs> a really good night's sleep love it love it oh Amal thank you so much you have been amazing we covered a lot there and I just think it's really good to hear someone like yourself talking so honestly about their experiences with exercise having a really honest account of when you might not get it right and also when you do and and I'm, I'm just so grateful for your time today thank you so much thanks for having me you so much for listening i really hope you enjoyed that episode i have a little request for you all if it's not too much to ask it really really helps if you rate review and subscribe to the podcast as it means that others can find it and hopefully gain from it too we have a new episode dropping every week so stay tuned and thanks for listening Thanks so much to the delicious and brilliant Dorset Cereals for sponsoring this episode of Give Me Strength. Visit www.dorsetcereals.co.uk to find out more about breakfast on the slow, discover delicious recipes and find tips on how to start the day at a slower pace.